Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Matthew, and um, chapter 22, and then I would ask that you would turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. By way of announcement, just to clarify, there will be no Bible study this evening. There will be no Bible study this evening, but there will be Grace School. So no Bible study, but there will be Grace School. So we are looking at, uh, we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 22, um, but we're going to actually spend a significant amount of time in 1 John. So kind of be ready to turn there. That would be great. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your presence and just say thank you. Thank you so much that you are our God and Thank you for sending your son. Thank you so much. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and for teaching us and dying for us and all that you've done. And Lord, we just pray that you will speak to us this morning. We pray that each one of us individually, you will speak to us and that you will help us and that you will give us grace and that you will deepen our relationship with you in a very deep and significant way. Even, even this morning, we pray, you're a great God. You can do great things. Help us this morning, we pray. Bless us now as we seek to study your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A lot of times when it's the beginning of a sports season, whether it's football season, basketball, now baseball, um, they interview the sporting guys and they say, so what do you, what, what do you think and what, what's, what's up? What are you going to do? Uh, tell us what you want. And they always say the same thing. They always say, uh, we just want to win a championship. We just want to win the championship. We don't care about anything else. We want to win the championship. And you may even sometimes to try to get more out of athletes than, than that, they'll say, well, but what about you personally? What are some of your personal goals? And, and again, a lot of times you'll hear them say something like this. Uh, I don't matter. That don't matter. That don't matter. My personal goals don't matter. I want this team to win the championship, and I'm going to do my part. That's all that's happened that matters is the one goal, get a championship ring on my finger. That's all that matters. And that's what we're actually going to look at today. We're going to look at the one goal, the very one thing that you and I should be concerned about above everything else this day. And it's going to be the great commandment to love God with everything you got. And um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to actually organize our thinking under four questions, okay? Four questions. And after we look at the context a little bit, we're going to ask the question, why? Then we're going to ask the question, how does this love God with everything you got work? And then we're going to ask, well, what does this mean? What does it look like kind of thing? That's, that's actually the third question. There's two questions in the third question. And then the final one is, how can we love God like this? How can we love God? So why, how does this love of God thing work? Uh, what does it mean practically? What's it look like? And then finally, how can we love God like this? So let's look at the passage and, uh, and its context. Look at verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. And when the multitudes heard this, they, I'm sorry, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? 
And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Now, we're going to take up the first commandment this week and, Lord willing, the second commandment next week. But we want to, we want to look at the first commandment. Now, again, the, remember the context. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. It's the final week of his life. And then all of a sudden, all this controversy starts happening. Why, who gave you this authority? Who gave you this authority to do this? And then they started testing him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And then the second test that came up was, is there a resurrection? How could there possibly be a resurrection? And now we're at the third test. And so you see in verse 34, it says that the Pharisees heard that he had silenced. And the word's very powerful there, by the way. It says muzzled the Sadducees. They gather together and they give it another shot. And the other shot that they give is they bring in a lawyer, okay? And it's the, actually the only time that Matthew uses this word lawyer. Usually he uses the word scribe. And scribes were people who spent their whole life studying the Bible, studying the Old Testament law. But lawyers uh, often, and sometimes words used interchangeably, but these lawyers, and the way Matthew is clearly using it here, these guys were above the scribe. This guy was the heavy hitter. This was the guy who spent his whole life and had some level of real esteem as to, as to what he was. So, so they bring in the heavy hitter, and he asks them, Jesus this question, verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, there are, so by, by many accounts, there's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament law, all right? And it wasn't unusual to evaluate them and to say, well, some are more significant than others, aren't they? Even Jesus did that. Look at chapter 23 and verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So Jesus talks about the weightier matters of the law. And so this lawyer comes, and they're going to test Jesus by, by giving him. It's kind of a tough test in one sense. It's, it's an easy test in another sense. But in one sense, it's a tough test. What is the greatest commandment in the law? That's like asking, you know, to, to, to Pharisees and scribes who study all of these laws. And, and if you read the Talmud or the Mishnah or some of the writings that they have, how they go into minute detail and all this stuff. It's kind of like asking, who is the best football player of all time ever? Okay, And you would get all kinds of different things and different comments. But for Jesus, it's an easy one. In fact, notice how he doesn't even hesitate. Jesus says in verse 37, Jesus said to him, now Jesus immediately quotes the Bible, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus quotes him the scripture. Now, of course, Jesus actually quoted what would be considered probably the most important and the most recognizable Old Testament scripture to any Jewish person. This is similar to Jesus quoting John 3. It would be for John 3.16 to a Christian. This is, and, and, and this is called the Shema. Uh, what Jesus is quoting is called the Shema. And Shema 
comes from the Hebrew word hear or listen, because that's the first word of the Shema. This is the first passage of Scripture that any Hebrew child would ever memorize, and it's a prayer. It's turned into a prayer that Jewish people would pray uh, every single day. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. And we're going to put it on the screen. And it goes like this. Here, that's the word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Jesus tells them the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, some with all of your mind. In different passages of Scripture, uh, those words are used. Now, they're not used mutually exclusively. Now, let's just talk about the heart, then let's just talk about the soul. And let's No, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They're overlapping. And basically what Jesus is saying is the whole person, all that is in you, all that you are, should love God. That's the number one commandment. That's the number one duty. That's what we're to be all about. Now, let's think about this. This is it. <laughs> this is the Super Bowl. This is the one thing. What are you going to do? We're winning the championship. This is it. Love God with everything you've got is our number one duty. It's our number one job. It is why you and I exist. It is why we were born. It is why God created you. It's why God created me. It's the most important thing that God has put me and you on the earth to do. And we're to do this, love God, with all you are. With all you are. And your life and my life will be considered a success. If we do this, and if we don't do this, our lives will be considered a failure, no matter what else we do. You could be a CEO of a multinational company. You could be a, a, a Super Bowl ring winner and have them on every finger. You could be the most beautiful woman in the world. You could be the most handsome guy in the world. You could be the richest. You could be everything. No matter what you do, you could build bigger barns and be really rich. But if you die and you fail to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, you're a failure. You're a failure. You got one thing to do. And one says, that's what this is saying. And it's a challenge. And so that leads us to a first question. Why? Why do we have to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength? Why? Why, do we have, why is this the number one thing? And... I'm asking this question because we are moderns. We are modern man. We are modern, secular, post-enlightenment man. That's what we do. We, we ask ourselves, why? Why? See, we recognize no authority above us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We say, no, no, wait a minute. No, 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 wait. 
I, I've got authority. I, I call my own shots. No, no, we believe that we're all little gods and we're all autonomous. And so the question that one, one would ask, a modern man would ask this. By the way, most other cultures, in it, both presently and in history, wouldn't ask this question. Muslims wouldn't ask this question. Buddhists wouldn't ask this question. Hindus wouldn't ask this question. Christians shouldn't ask this question either, by the way. And all through history, people would have said, you need to make God first. And said, of course we do. Of course we do. We create everything. But secular man says, what the world? What are you talking about? No. Why? Why should I love God with all my heart, my all my soul, all my so? So let me try to answer that question because God has called me to minister to moderns like you and I. Well, first of all, we could say this because God commanded it. It's our duty. See, we need to be careful as Christians that we don't absorb the autonomous, independent, godlike independence that thinking that our culture has now that says we do everything apart from God. We do everything what we want. Man is the one who's in charge here. We have to be careful as Christians. We don't absorb this as well. You see, the Bible's teaching is very God-centered. God created everything. God owns everything. God's in charge of everything. God is truly God. It's his world. He's the supreme authority. He has the right to tell us to do what our duty is. He has the right to tell us what our job is. And God says this, your job is to love me with everything that you've got. And our proper response to that is, aye, aye, Captain, I'm going to get to work. Yes, certainly, I will obey. That's really, our, we should love God with all of our heart, first and foremost, because God has commanded us to do it, and he's God. But there's more to it than that. There's a lot more to it than that. Secondly, we should love God, and God commands us to love him with all of our heart, because God is so worthy of our love. God is just so worthy of our love. I'm going to use some phrase, some words, but try to, Try to not, let, let, try to expand them infinitely. God is worthy of our love because God is so lovable. Now, I don't mean that in the gushy kind of teddy bearish, fat grandpa type stuff. I'm talking about God is lovable. God is, God is so, so, so easy to love, as it were. So it so draws our love out. God is so. Such a being that if you know him, you will love him and love him supremely. God is lovely in that sense. Again, don't think of that in terms of how we think of that, say, romantically. God is, is, is beautiful. And, and, and to, to love him, just is, it draws, out, draws us out. Look in, your, in 1 John, for instance. In 1 John chapter 4, notice what, uh, what John writes in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Or that, that could be translated, love is, comes out of God. Or all love just kind of emanates out of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God is an infinite reservoir of love. God is an infinite ocean of love. God is an infinite space, light years and light years and light years of love. God, his very nature, his very being, who he is, one of his main attributes, as it were, is that God is love. And those who know him best love him most. The more you know of God, the more your love for him is just drawn out to him. 
Those who know him best love him most. Those who are nearest to him are the most overwhelmed by God's love and who he is. When you see God finally, dear Christian, when you are in the very presence of God finally, two things are going to happen to you. Lots of things are going to happen to you, but I'm going to focus on two. Number one, you will feel like you never knew what it meant to be loved. God is love. He is infinite love. There's no, there's no boundaries to his love. There's no, infinity means there's no ends. There's no boundaries. There's no extension. He's, he's infinitely loving. And you will never feel, and once that ocean of love gets poured out on you, you will never feel more loved in your life. But a second thing is going to happen to you at that moment. You will never feel like you loved anything compared to how much you love him because he is so beautifully lovable and you will just be drawn out in your love for him. And so to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind should be natural to us. And the third reason why is because he first loved us. Look at verse, uh, verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested towards... I'm back in First John, by the way. In this the love of God was manifest toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Remember we looked at this, how God did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all? That's what's being said here in this verse. In this the love of God was manifested towards us. God showed us how much he loved us. That's what that verse means. In that he sent his only begotten, look how the, the wording is, his only begotten son, his precious one and only son, as it were. Some Bibles translate that. His only begotten, the one who, who, who alone is, is, eminent, is the emanation of his own being. His only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. I'm going to give you my son so that you would live. I love you so much. Then look at verse, uh, then look at verse uh, 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means that which will take care of our sins, that by which wrath will be taken care of, that by which justice will be satisfied. He sent his son to be that force. And this is love. This is love. This is love. Love is that God gave us his son. God used, did all of these things, broke his heart, as it were, if you could speak like that, in, in, in giving his own son for us. And this is love. We should love him because he loved us. Look at verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. That's what it means to love God. Okay. Well, how does this love of God work? How does this loving God with all of your heart, how, 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 could, how does that work? Well, let me say it's easy and it's hard. It's both easy and hard. It's easy because, as we've already looked at, God is so lovable. To know him is to love him. The more you know him, the more you draw near to him, the more you get close to him, the more you'll love him. It's just God. That's the easy part. Just know God, and you'll just keep loving him and loving him. and loving. Know what God's done for you, and you'll just keep loving him and loving him and loving him. That's the easy part. What's the hard part? The hard part is we were born God-haters. That's the hard part. The Bible teaches this. By sin, we were born God-haters. You've heard natural-born killers. We were born natural-born God-haters. And when God finally did send his only begotten son, what did we corporately as human beings do? We executed him. 
we execute him. You see, God created us to love God, to love him. Adam and Eve were created in such a way that it was just natural for them to love God with all that. They couldn't wait. They, they, they loved God tending the garden. They loved God when they met with him in the cool of the evening. They loved, that was natural. That was natural. And, and then the devil comes and, and tempts them, and then they fall into sin. And that sin twists and perverted and distorted them. And, that's, and that sin reigns within Adam and all of his children. And all of us are born with this enmity against God that there's no reason to. He's so lovely. He's so beautiful. He's so lovable. And yet we have this enmity against God. We, we don't like him. We, we don't want to be near him and such. And we know this. You know this. I know this because you've experienced it in your own life. You've experienced it in your own life. For instance, I had to begin this sermon by asking this very awful question that I didn't want to ask, but I felt like I had to ask. Why? <laughs> Wasn't that terrible? I hope when I said, why, let me ask the question, why? I, I hope some of you said, Todd, that's really bad of you to do that. Because it, it, I, I felt like I had to do it because I'm speaking to moderns. I gave you my reasons. But really, we should never have asked that question. We should, that's because we're twisted, sinful people. Why do I have to love God? I don't want to love God. That's what's, we're twisted. But we've also seen it, dear friends, in other ways. Why do we have to drag ourselves to worship? Why do we have to force ourselves to pray? Why do we have to make ourselves read the Bible? What is it that just, we, have to, we have to fight against inside ourselves to pray? to read our Bibles, to worship. Why are we so drawn to mindless entertainment and yet drawn away from our devotions? Why are we so drawn to gossip or pornography or arrogant boasting or meanness and drawn away from holiness, drawn away from preaching, drawn away from Bible study, drawn away from corporate worship, drawn away from sacrificial service? Why? What's wrong with us? It's because of sin. And we must be born again. We need to have new hearts. We need to have the reign of sin broken. We need to have sin dethroned from our lives. We need to be made new and born of God. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We need new hearts. We need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Now, we still have remaining sin within us. That's why even as Christians with new hearts, we still struggle to, to draw near to God. We still struggle to have our devotions. We still struggle to read our Bibles when reading the sports section or reading the news is just is something we're just drawn to. Why? It's be, we need to be born again and have new hearts, be renewed by the Holy Spirit, and then we need to nurture this relationship with God. We need to seek to know God, and by seeking to know God, then we will love him. So then that leads to the third question. It kind of takes us down this pathway. What would this look like? What would this mean, this full-orb, whole-person love for God? What, what, what are you talking about? Like, how does that work out in, 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 in everyday life? And the, the wonderful thing is, is we have a supreme example. We have a supreme illustration. And that illustration, of course, is the perfect son of God. He came from the father. He lived a human life just like ours. He grew up from a baby to, to being an adult. 
He went to work as an adult and worked for decades in, in a manual job, in a blue-collar construction worker. And uh, he, he, his father died early on somehow, and, and he was in responsible for a family of almost uh, at least five, probably more children uh, there. And, uh, and, and, and he lived a normal life. And so he's our supreme example. He's a perfect example. If we want to know what this would look like, we have to look at Jesus, and we'll see it, okay? What do we see when we look at Jesus? Well, first of all, and I could go on forever, ever, I can't do that, obviously. He delighted in God. He delighted in God. Part of what it means to love God with all your heart is, now get ready to write this down, it's complicated. You know how to love God? Just love him. Just love him. In other words, what I mean by this is, this isn't complicated. Think of somebody that you love right now. Think of somebody that you know in your head you love. It might be your spouse sitting next to you. It might be your child. Just think of somebody you know that you know you love. Now, think of another one. Okay? Hopefully you love more than one person in this world. And hopefully that first person wasn't you. Okay? Hopefully, yeah, no, I love somebody outside myself. Okay, no, I love him. I love her. Think of another one. Well, I love her too. Think of another one. Well, I love her. What is it that that means when you say that you love them? Well, one of the things that it means certainly is that you delight in them. You delight in them. You have joy in them. Your emotions are wrapped up with them. Your heart wells up for them. They are your beloved. If it's a spouse, if it's a friend, if it's a child, if it's a grandchild, if it's a dear brother and sister in Christ, you're happy to see them. They make you smile. You feel good about them. Your being delights in their being. And that's what it means to love God. There's something that energizes you about them. And Jesus loved his father like this. He loved his father. Jesus would often get alone. And you'd see it in Jesus' life. And he often gets alone to be with his father. And sometimes if you read the Gospels and you read them carefully, you realize Jesus has been very super busy all day. He's preached, and then he's healed all of these people, and he's super busy, and he's got to be exhausted. And then what does he do? When the nighttime comes, he goes alone to be in a mountain. Or early the next morning before anybody gets awake, he walks out of town. The roosters haven't even started crowing yet. Everybody's still asleep. And Jesus is walking out of town, even though he's had an incredibly exhausting day. He's walking out of town to be alone, to be with his father. Why? Out of duty? No. He delighted in him. He loved him. He knew him. He delighted in him. Sometimes Jesus prayed all night. All night, Jesus lost touch with time. He lost touch. He was delighting with and fellowshipping with and being with the one that he loves the most. He delighted in him, and all of a sudden, the rooster started crowing. And he looked at the, at the, at the, at the, at the, uh, the horizon on the east, and, and it started turning red and pink. And he said, 
I've been here. And then all of a sudden the disciples come and say, we've been looking for you. Where have you been? Where have you been? And he was not tired. He was energized because of his love for his father. I think we capture a little bit of this in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 4, 8, when it says this, these are people, these are creatures or beings. As I don't like the word creatures there. It's beings, four living beings. And they're with God and they see God and they know God. And it says the four living beings, each having six wings, were full, were full of eyes all around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is delight in God. This is delight in God. How else does love of God show itself? How else does it show itself? It shows itself in allegiance, in true allegiance. If you love somebody, you're committed to them. You feel this toward, the, toward those you. You're on their side. You're on their side. Hey, coach, why is my kid on the bench? <laughs> well, your kid's probably on the bench because the other kids are probably better than him. But you don't think that because you love your kid. Hey, coach, I want my kid in the game, man. See, that's your allegiance. That's your allegiance. Or, you know, people can be creeping into it. I don't care what you say, but don't you talk about my kid. Don't you talk about that. There's an allegiance. There's a personal allegiance that comes from when you love somebody. And the Lord Jesus Christ had this. He had this allegiance to his father. Last week we saw the, 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 the intellectual elites making fun of the, of, of the resurrection. And, and Jesus just takes a firm stand with the Bible. You don't know God. You don't know your Bible. I'm, I'm standing firm. There is a resurrection. You can laugh at me all you want, but I'm siding with God and his word. That's what Jesus was. Jesus was completely, he had his complete allegiance and zeal for God. And that's what Chris just read about Phineas. Phineas, the, the people of God were doing exactly what God told them not to do. They were, they were inter, interwoven with the Midianites, and they were sleeping with Midianite women and marrying Midianite women in absolute violation. They were to be kept holy and pure and kept separate in order that they would as a nation be preserved until the Messiah were to come. And here in this, instead, they're sinning against God, and, they're, and, and they realize it, and the Spirit of God has, has convicted them, and, and God is at work in their lives, bringing them to repentance, and they're all sitting around the tabernacle, and they're weeping, and they're crying, God, we're so sorry, our people are interacting with the Midianites, this is so wrong, oh God, they're having a little prayer meeting, a little cry session, and all that's going on, and all of a sudden, some arrogant, brash man, Hebrew man, comes walking in with a Midianite woman on his arm, and he laughs, hey boys, how you doing, we're going to go in the tent, have a little intimate time. And he walks into that tent. And the people over here, they're like, oh, God, see what's happening. God, oh, we just feel so bad. We feel bad for you. We feel sorry. We're broken. Phineas didn't do that. Phineas saw him walking in, and he grabbed a javelin. And he went marching into that tent, threw open the tent door. That man's laying there. He might be laying with that woman. And wham! He nailed them both. Wham! Right to the ground. Why? Well, the Bible interprets it for us. He was zealous for God. His love for God had a personal allegiance and said, you don't dishonor my God like this. I love him. Never. Not only is that allegiance showing that way, but it shows in another way. It shows in a way of, of promoting God. Jesus was all about promoting his father because he loved his father. Again, it comes back to, hey, coach, why is my kid sitting on the bench? You're promoting your kid. 
You love him. You want him out in the game. You want her out in the game. That's what you want to have happen. Well, God, you love somebody. You're, you're for them. You promote them. You think they're the greatest. You brag on them, whatever. But Jesus had this as well. Jesus was constantly saying, I have come to do my father's will. Come to do my father's will. When Jesus met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, interacted with her, sent her back in, and she went back to town, and he's, she's telling him, I met this prophet, I met this. The disciples come out, and they hadn't eaten for a long time, and the disciple says, Master, you need to eat, you need to eat. Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about. He said, my food is to do my father's will until it's done. He loved his father so much that doing his father's will and even sacrificing for his father's will didn't even feel like a sacrifice. I'm not even hungry. I'm energized because, look, the gospel's going into Sychar. The gospel's going into Samaria. I'm excited. I'm energized. I'm hungry for his glory. Moses was the same way. Moses brings these people out of the wilderness and he gets them out of Egypt into the wilderness and they immediately start complaining. They immediately start whining. We need food. We need water. Oh, we wish we were slaves back again because at least we had some, we, at least we had onions for our tacos. Oh, we don't get any leeks out here. They have leeks in there. We're hungry. We want water. We're hungry. Hey, let's stone this Moses. Hey, let's stone Aaron. We hate these guys. Let's go. So then Moses goes up on the mountain and he's, he meets with God. He gets the Ten Commandments and God says, by the way, when you go down there, and it's interesting that passage Chris read because God says, those people you brought out of Egypt, I'm going to kill them all. And I'm going to make you the new Abraham. From you and your seed, I'm going to make the promised people. God just offered to exalt Moses to the place of highest, highest exaltation a human being can have short of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Abraham does have. We're children of Abraham, dear friends. And Moses said, you can't do that. Like, see, if I was Moses at that point, I would say, good. Because I'm going to tell you something, God. These people have been a pain in the neck. This has been terrible leading these people. Wipe them all out. And we'll start making kids and we'll have an I'll be. No, Moses did that. Moses said, no, God. No, no, you can't do that. Number one, they're your people. They're not mine. Number two, if you do that, all of the nations will say, you're a lousy God. They'll say, you brought him out into the wilderness just to destroy them. What kind of wicked, mean God you are? No, God, please don't do that. Preserve them. Forgive them. Bless them. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God, please. I'm concerned about your glory. I'm not concerned about me. I'm concerned about you. That's love for God. That's whole-orbed love for God. And that's what you're seeing it here in this. And the final thing that you see in love for God is obedience to God. Love, love shows itself in obedience to God. Look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. You love God, you're going to love his begotten son, that's for sure. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus loved his father. He loved his father and he obeyed him. He obeyed his father. 
And he loved his father so deeply that he would do his father's will. When he was, when he was starving to death, as it were, in the wilderness, and the devil came and said, make bread, as the devil was tempting the second Adam, just like he tempted the first Adam with food. But the second Adam's not in paradise. He's not in a garden, and there's not fruit all over the place to eat. He's starving, and it says, take this into your own hands. Do your own will. Do, live autonomously to him. The same temptation that Adam and Eve got. And Jesus there said, no, 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 no. I'll continue in my terrible hunger because the word of God says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. No, no, I will trust him. I will obey him. And when he's ready to feed me, I will be fed. Jesus didn't use his powers. He never used his powers to his, for his own needs. If they were hungry, they plucked grain. He didn't, he didn't say, hey, boys, I'm going I'm to make here. Boom, there's some Big Macs. Go ahead and eat them. He didn't do that. And then, of course, there's Gethsemane. Oh, I don't want to die. I don't want this terrible suffering. I don't want to be nailed. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be so humiliated. I don't want to be rejected. Oh, I don't. Oh, God, please. I don't want this to happen. But I want one thing greater than my own safety and security. I want to obey you. Not my will, but your will be done. That's why Paul said that he obeyed unto death. So let's summarize this for ourselves by way of application with the last sentence. How can we love God? How can common people like me and you love God? How can we do this? Well, number one, of course, you must be born again. You must be born of God. is how Mark John says it in 1 John. <clears throat> you must be a new creation. You must have a new heart. The Holy Spirit must be dwelling within you. And the Holy Spirit will shows you your need, shows you your need for Christ. You come to Christ, you believe in him, you trust in him. And then from that, you, you then walk with God. That you must have that happen. And you'll begin to recognize the change that you have been born again. One of the changes that you'll recognize is you want to know God. You want to know God. Suddenly the Bible has taken an, in, you've taken an interest in it. Suddenly, hearing God's word preached is something that you're willing to get up in the morning and go to. You, you, you want to know God. And, and then as you come to know God, you will love him. And so, number one, you must be born again. Number two, feed then your desires to know God. Feed your desires to know God. Look at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Feed your desires to know God. Okay? First of all, to know the person of God. To know the person of God. See, the more you know about God, the more you'll love him, and the more you know. Like right now in your head, how many attributes of God can you list in your head and know their meaning? By the attributes of God is, what is God like? What is God like? Let me, let me I'll just share with you. I, I don't like to bind people's conscience. You don't have to do everything the way I do stuff. You know, I, I, don't, don't, don't feel that way at all. I just want to share with you my own experience and, and my own heart in this. In my prayer time, after I, I read some scripture or something, I spend some time in the Word, I begin to pray. And in my prayer time, I begin with worship 
and I begin worshiping God. And oftentimes, well, all the time pretty much, unless I desperately have a need, I just come running in like a little child and say, please help me. And I'm not saying that negatively. But mostly what I do is I begin to worship God. I begin to worship his attributes. I begin to praise him because he's eternal. To me, it always just blows my mind that little Todd here is probably, you know, check his pulses. He's still around. Yeah, he's so, so old and creaky. Yeah, he's still alive. I'm talking to an eternal being. Like, I just get overwhelmed by that. I'm talking to an eternal being. And as I'm praising and worship his, his, his eternality, he is the ancient of days. He is the one who, who in 1200 AD and 1200 BC was around. I'm talking to this man. And then I begin to worship his majesty, his greatness, his holiness, his justice. And take time. I don't just say those words. I take time and worship him and join the angels and praise him. And eventually, 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 I always get to his goodness and his compassion and his generosity and his love. And at this point, I'm getting caught up in just who God is and the beauty of who he is. And my heart is engaging with him and going out. Now, some days I have a headache. Some days I'm tired. Some days my mind's wandering. Don't, 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 don't flower this up at all. But what I'm saying is, is that the, but there are times that I am in heaven losing track of time. And I am with God. And I eventually get to his love. And I just so praise him and thank him for grace and for sending his son and then I turn to the son and I thank him for coming and I thank and what I'm saying is is that one of the ways that you can come to know God is by worshiping him by praising him by praying to him by praying through his attributes by seeking to get to know him secondly revel in how much he loved you revel in that so look at verses nine eight nine and nine and ten again in this is love, that he manifests himself. Verse 10, in this is love. Revel in what God has done. And then finally, this, so just, I just want to encourage you in that. Revel in what God has done. Thank him for what he's done. Be amazed at what he's done, how much he's loved you, and your heart will be wed to him. You'll start feeling all this allegiance to him. You'll start feeling all this zeal for him. You'll start feeling all this commitment to him. You'll start feeling this desire to keep his commandments, and you'll just delight in him. Revel in what he's done and how he's done what he's given us. And finally, dear friends, listen to me very carefully. This is the end goal, to love God, to delight in him, to be happy in him, to rejoice in him, to have allegiance to him. This is the end goal when we say here time and time again, spend some time in prayer, spend some time reading the Bible, and spend some time in corporate worship. Now, we say that over and over again, okay, here. We say that in this place. Have your devotions. Have your time in prayer. Read your Bible. Be involved in corporate worship. But I want you to understand, dear friends, why we say that. This isn't a work to merit and earn your salvation with Jesus. This isn't some kind of atoning sacrifice because you've sinned, and if you, if you do a bunch of this stuff, then your sins will be forgotten. No, Jesus is our sacrifice. What we're saying is this. This will aid you in loving God. Dear friends, don't pray because it's a duty and I have to pray. Now, sometimes we do have to do that because of our remaining sin. We've got to start beating it down again. But don't make that all the time. See prayer as getting alone with God. Couples like to get alone with each other. If, you, if one of my kids were starting to date somebody, you know, and everything, we had a family picnic. 
you know, he or, or she and the one that they're dating would, would always just wander off away from the group. Because why? They, they wanted to be alone. They wanted couples like that. They want to be alone. Grandpas will say, hey, let's you and I go fishing, just me and you. We'll get out on the boat. We'll fish, just me and you. And what is that? I, I, I want to I get alone with you, and we're just going to spend some time together enjoying and delighting one another. Dear friends, see prayer like that. Jesus says, lock the door, get alone. And be with your father and talk with him. Dear ones, let's be people of prayer because we want to love God. And when you're reading your Bible, don't feel like, oh, I've got to read my Bible. I've got to get through my verses. I've got to get through my chapters so I can feel like I'm a good Christian. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay, Jam, what do you want to talk about? i got to be a good husband, so i got to talk. Let's talk. Jam would say, I don't want you to be that. No, she would never. But I don't want you to be, you know, I don't want you to talk to me because you have to. I want you to talk to me because you love me. Dear ones, come to your Bible and say, oh, God, please, I just want to know you. I want to love you. Help me as I read this. Help me as I think about this. Help me to, and help me just to find out who you are. Go on an, an exploration mission to find out who God is. Corporate worship. There's promises that where two or three are gathered, he's going to be here. Gather into corporate worship. Finally, I would say to you, walk with God daily. Uh, 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 skip, skip 1 Corinthians. Go to Genesis 5.24. Poor Enoch, he died real early. Skip that one. We'll go to uh, the next one. Yep. Poor Enoch, he died early. He was only 365 years old. Died early. Why do I say that? Well, his dad lived, Jared, lived to be 962. And his son, Methuselah, is the largest record, longest recorded living human being. Methuselah lived to be, uh, he, he lived to be 969. So poor Enoch, he died at 365 years old. But, and Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Enoch didn't die. The book of Hebrews tells us that God was, one day Enoch went out to work, walk with God. And God just says, here, keep walking, keep walking into my hands. Come on, you come home with me. But I love what it says here. Enoch walked with God. Enoch daily walked with God. Dear ones, I want to encourage you to have a goal. To be somebody who so loves God that when your name is mentioned, people think of God. They think of you and God. They think that you are connected with God and immediately go, man, that person loved God. There's probably people you know that you think of their name, that you think of God right away. Be that kind of person. And listen, please, dear ones, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be an officer in the church. You can be a housewife and a stay-at-home mom and be a lover of God who walks with God. You can be an office worker. You can be a construction worker like Jesus was. You can be retired and elderly and walk with God. You can be poor, a very simple means, but somebody who walks with God and loves God. You can be a single mom who loves God. You can be a single person who loves God. We're all strugglers. We all sin, but we also love God. And in the end, let's hope that the sum of our lives is this. He loved God. She loved God. And I'm going to conclude. I know I'm going a little bit late here, but I just want to conclude with this, just this little story of a man who had a deep, deep impact in my life. You don't know him. His name was Dan Sinia. 
and Dan was a mill worker in Warren, Ohio. And this was before the day that guys who worked with their hands had latex gloves. So I always remember, even as a little child, seeing Dan's hands and there was just black, black fingernails from the grease from the mill that he worked at. Dan was saved after a life of drunkenness and womanizing. Dan was saved. And one of the, the impressions that, that came to my mind in the little Romanian Baptist church that we were a part of over in Warren, Ohio, is Dan was the first person I ever met and ever saw that when he sang hymns, he just, tears just ran down his cheeks. And Dan lived his life for Christ. He just want, he just loved God so much. And he, he ran our youth group and he, he, he was just tireless in, in, in us coming to Christ. Simple, humble, uneducated man. And the last words that he ever said to me, I still remember, and I will always remember. I was a college student, and he, I had come to faith in Christ. He was excited about that. I was a college student, and he always led carolers, and they would come to my grandma's house, and we were all gathered together on Christmas Eve. And Dan found me and heard about my conversion and that I was struggling. And, you know, I was in college now. He was worried. And Dan just said one thing to me. He just said one thing, three words. He just said them to me like this. He's, and he looked at me and he said, keep loving him. Keep loving him. And, and that summarized Dan Sinia. When I think of Dan Sinia, I think of loving God. And I just want to give Dan's words to you. Keep loving God. Let's pray. Father, we immediately want to say, who are we, that we would be called into intimate fellowship with you and be your children. It's all of grace. It's because you're such a lovable, lovely, loving God who is love. And you just embraced us and enveloped us in your love. Thank you. Thank you that we're here and we're your children and that you love us. And thank you that you command us to do that which is the most enjoyable and best thing for us to do anyway, which is to love you. Oh, Father, help us. We wish we could love you more. Help us, we pray. But we do love you, Father. We're thankful. We're grateful. We love you. Help us, we pray, to seek after you, to seek to know you, to be, a, to, 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 to be willing to be committed and dedicated to you, to delight in obeying you. Help us to love you, we pray. Thank you for loving us and sending your son. We pray this in your precious name.